Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So welcome everyone. It's nice to see everyone. Well, not everyone here, but there are many of you here. Um, so I'm very pleased to welcome um, Assistant Professor Elay Shek from Auburn University and Associate Professor Jonathan Talent from Nottingham University, who are both uh, visiting the Sydney Centre for the Foundations of Science and the Centre for Time. Um, and they're here uh, as part of the Sydney Science Festival for Sydney Ideas. So uh, Dr Shek completed his PhD at the University of Pittsburgh in 2015. He works primarily in philosophy of science and philosophy of physics, although his philosophical interests extend to the philosophy of maths and aesthetics. His recent papers focus on the nature and role of idealizations and representations in the sciences. So he's currently writing a book on infinite idealizations in physics, which will explore, among other things, the following cool stuff, phase transitions, spontaneous symmetry breaking, the Aronoff-Bohm effect, and the emergence of anions in the fractional quantum Hall effect. We're not expecting you to understand all of the above. And to my left, Associate Professor Jonathan Talent completed his PhD at the University of Durham in 20, uh, 2005. Uh, he works principally in metaphysics uh, with a focus on the philosophy of time and is probably best known for defending a novel version of presentism, which is a view that we will in fact be encountering uh, later tonight. Uh, he's con consulted with a number of international companies about the nature of time and his third book, Truth and the World, is due to come out later this year. Uh, and Jonathan will be um, kicking us off, as it were, to be followed by Elay with then a, a brief um, hand back to Jonathan, and then we'll have a bit of a discussion before we hand it over to you guys for questions. Jonathan. Cool. Uh, thanks, Christy. Can everybody hear me? Because you could hear Christy. At the back, we good? Excellent. Okay, so uh, I'm going to be opening things up, talking a little bit about the philosophy of time generally, to sort of get us going before Elay is going to come in and do some more with the physics a little bit later on, I think. Uh, and so what do philosophers of time do, I think, is, is, is a first good question that we might want to broach just a little bit. Uh, well, there are some big questions that we think that might need answering, or at least uh, even if we can't actually answer them, we're going to try and answer them. We're going to do our very, very best. Um, good. And <laughs> three kind of big, fun questions that are... Uh, Always interesting to think about. What's the nature of time? Uh, that's worried people for thousands and thousands of years, and it's a really, really tough question to answer, and I like thinking about it uh, and trying to answer it and doing my best. What's the nature of temporal passage? So it seems fairly intuitive, seems fairly natural to say that time passes. Uh, I'm pretty sure we've all said that. We've all said that uh, things change as time goes by. First it's one thing, then it's another, uh, in reference to some bill or financial payment of some sort. Um, and also, we think that time has a direction, right? We think there are some things that are earlier than others, some things that are later than others. It seems like maybe we're moving from the past to the future, uh, the present in some way shifting forwards uh, in time. Okay, so those are the kind of the questions that, or some of the questions that might get a philosopher of time uh, wetting their metaphorical lips, I guess. That, that feels a bit mangled, but you get the general idea. So how do we do this? What, what exactly is it that goes on uh, in the philosophy lab, philosophy office, wherever it is we do our thing? Um, I want to broach this because sometimes you sort of I, I, you say, you know, I'm a philosopher. I remember very, very vividly getting on a flight to the US and saying to someone who was sat next to me in response to the question, you know, what are you doing? I was like, 
I'm off to a philosophy conference. She says, all oh, right, what, what do you do? I say, I, I do, do the metaphysics, metaphysics of time. She goes, brilliant, me too. What kind of crystals do you use? I'm like, no, <laughs> right. It's kind of not what I do. And, but I think that this perception about the way that philosophy works uh, or the misperception about the way that philosophy works comes up in a, a number of different forms, right? So there's the, on the far left there, right? Just question everything. Uh, well, why? Right? Ho, ho, good. Right? There's, a, there's a grain of truth in that. That's what philosophers do, but uh, it's not all of it. There's the strapping chap in the middle there who, who I think looks great and is very intently resting his stone chin on his stone fist. Uh, there's a bit of pipe action on one side. Do all philosophers need pipes to work? Uh, quick jump ahead to what's coming? No, right? You don't need a pipe. Um, I think that the, the photograph captioned on the bottom left there is uh, white man reads book in coffee shop, right? <laughs> is that what you do? Well, some of the time, right? But that's not all there is to it. Uh, and then there's the all action philosophers, right? Plato, smash, destroy, right? We destroy things, but what exactly are we doing? Okay. Joking to one side, what is it that we actually do? Well, what folks like me will try and do is we will try and build models about where the way that we think that the world is. Okay, so we work on the basis that the world really is some objective, mind-independent way, uh, and we're going to try and work out how it is. And we're going to try and come up with a model that's accurate, that's right, that's true, uh, and all of those sorts of things. And we've got to start somewhere. So the way that philosophers typically, or people who come from my tradition, are going to work is we're going to start off with the way that the world seems to us. Okay, so if the world seems to be a particular way, if some particular description seems right to you, we're going to start there. We're not going to finish there, but we are going to start there on the basis that we have to start somewhere. And then we're going to modify those models. Right? We're going to build a couple of pictures that try and accommodate those intuitions about the way that we think that the world is. And then we're going to bring in insights from other disciplines. So we're going to bring in insights from physics. We're going to bring in insights from chemistry. Uh, we're going to bring in insights from psychology and literature and all sorts of things. Uh, in, in fact, we, we are kind of the magpies of the intellectual world. We go around, we borrow things, and we steal things, and we take them back, and we try and fashion them into something uh, that we think looks sensible. That's the rough idea. So in the philosophy of time, what does that amount to? Well, I've alluded to uh, some of the ideas, but what we're going to see in just a second is what happens if we try and do exactly that in the philosophy of time. Start with a bunch of fairly intuitive claims about the nature of time, try and construct some quick models, uh, and then see what happens. Okay? Um, and then I'll hand over to Eli to tell us why it's all wrong. Right. So to start off with, I need to get some um, intuitions about the nature of time. And I've done talks like this before, and I've, got, I've gone one of two ways. One is to say, right, what are people's intuitions about, sil uh, about time? And then we have a nice five-minute silence uh, where no one volunteers anything. So I, I'm going to tell you what your intuitions about time are, <laughs> just to save us a little bit of, a little bit of silence. These, at any rate, are the sort of things that people have said are intuitive claims about time. Whether they're your intuitions or not, I don't mind too much. Okay. So first, right, I said it a minute ago, time seems to us to pass. That seems like the kind of thing that happens. It seems like it has a direction from earlier to later. Some people seem pretty committed to the idea that the past is, in some sense or other, more real than the future. Right? I guess there are, there's a sense in which things that have happened, so... 
my daughter dropping her jammy toast on my trousers this morning, right? That's real, that's established, that's fixed. Uh, my getting home and her dropping yet more jam on my trousers when I get there, that's not yet happened, right? That's unsettled, that, that doesn't seem to be quite as real. Similarly, the past is fixed in a way that the future isn't. Um, and then this other idea that the present is in some way or other special to us. Right? There seems to be something different about the present that marks it out from the past and the future. Or at least, that's the intuition that some people have reported. Okay, so there's a bunch of intuitions. How well can we accommodate those using some toy philosophical model? Okay, now, um, I want to be very, very, very clear here. What you're about to see is some very, very bad PowerPoint animations. Uh, and I've used these before to illustrate the views that I'm going to describe. And people have got very angry with me for showing bad PowerPoints. Right? What I wanted was complex philosophy. Right? That's fine. We'll do the philosophy at the same time. I'm just using these to try and give you a flavor or an idea for what's going on underneath. Okay. So the first view I want to just describe is presentism. And this is the view that only present objects exist. Okay. But the presentist doesn't think that like, reality's stuck, and that we're stuck in a present and nothing ever happens. The presentist thinks that what's present changes uh, as things progress. So in other words, we have something like this. There you go. I'm moving now, right? What's present moves along in some sense or other. But only the things that are at that present moment exist. That's all that there is to existence. Existence, we might say, is temporally very thin. doesn't have any duration. Okay, so that's one view. Now, how does this fare against those initial intuitions I was talking about? Well, time seems to pass, right? You saw the blue line move. That looks a bit like passage. Right? Things are changing anyway in some deep and substantial sense. And it seems to have a direction, right? Things are changing. The present's moving. That seems okay. Uh, but we're not accommodating the intuition that the past is more real than the future. Why not? Because only the present things exist. There are no, no claims about the reality of the past or the reality of future being built in. We're not going to get anything out about fixity either, because you've only got the present things existing. Only those are the things that are happening. But the present moment is pretty special, because only the things that exist there get to exist. Uh, and that's pretty special, right? If the past things don't exist, they count for nothing. And the present gets to be special by having the existing things. So people say. Okay, now next up, we get to understand just how unimaginative philosophical naming conventions are. Uh, we have a view known as the growing block theory of time. And here the idea is that reality consists of a block. And that what temporal passage consists in is the growing of the block. Okay, so the present moment is the one right at the edge of the block, such that it's the last moment in time. The past is the stuff that's back there in the block. The future doesn't exist. Okay, how are we doing against those, those intuitions? Well, now it seems we're doing pretty amazingly well. Why so? Well, time's passing. There's a real genuine change in what there is. We're adding things to the block of reality. Brilliant. Uh, it seems to have a direction. We're moving along in a particular direction. The, the block is growing in a direction, if you like. Uh, the past's more real than the future because it exists and the future doesn't. The past is fixed in a way that the future isn't because the past's all back there and exists. Uh, and that's a pretty fixed way of being, existing. Can't change. Um, and the present moment is indeed special because it's that last moment of existence. Brilliant. Well done, growing block. Okay. More bad PowerPoint animations to follow. Um, 
Next up, we have the moving spotlight. All objects, past, present, and future, they all just exist. But there's this property of presence, a bit like a spotlight, and it, it, it moves. It moves along the block. So the presence literally moves from the past all the way along, well, from one end of the block to the other. This is another model. How does this do? Well, again, right, time seems to be passing in some sense. You've got a property of presence that's moving across this block. Uh, it seems to have a direction. It's moving from one end to the other. The present moment is indeed special because it's this red line property of presence. That's, that's special in some way. Uh, but look, is the past more real than the future? No. They both exist. Past objects, present objects, future objects, all of those things just exist. Uh, and it doesn't seem that we get any difference in fixity out either because, again, all of those things simply exist. Okay. Last view. Eternalism. Now, this view is sometimes just called the static block theory. You'll be relieved there's no bad animation here because there's literally nothing for me to animate. The idea here is what we have is a fixed temporal structure, and we simply occupy that structure. Um, now, against those initial intuitions, things don't seem to go so well. The present doesn't move, so there doesn't seem to be uh, any time passing in there in any way that we can make sense of. It doesn't seem, for all that I've said, that time has a direction. We've just got a, got a lump, got a block, containing all these different objects. Is the past more real than the future? No, right? All of these things just exist. Is there any difference in fixity? No, right? All of these things just exist. Is the present special? No, stop. All of these things just exist. There is nothing special about the present. There isn't really any present built into that model. Okay, so there are a bunch of pictures of time, very, very quick sketches of philosophical theories that we could devote many hours to going through. And I don't mean to denigrate any of them by just giving them that very kind of superficial treatment, um, but I, I have 15 minutes. Okay, right, so where have we got to? Right, well, people like me, philosophers, we build these models and then we test them. And we start from these intuitive models. And notice that what happened when we were messing around with those intuitions, was that it kind of seemed like the dynamic pictures did a bit better. So the ones that had something moving in them, like the growing block where the block literally grows did pretty well. The moving spotlight view did okay. The presentist view did okay. The eternalist picture did not by any estimation do okay. Okay. Right. Now, that's all very well. But when I was sketching out what philosophers like me do, I said, we start with a bunch of intuitions about the nature of time, and then what do we do? Well, then we start to feed in insights from uh, other disciplines. And I think that, it's that, that at this point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to duck out, and I'm going to hand over so that we can get some more of that insight. Excellent. Should we put on my slide? Wonderful. All right. I think I'll be moving around a little bit. Uh, hopefully, you, can you hear me in the back? Uh, am I projecting well enough? Good. So uh, it's a little more difficult for me to just stay in place and talk. I feel like I need to move around. Uh, but hopefully, this will help with other types of animations, because in my slides, I don't have anything moving. So I'll just move around instead. I want to start by talking to you about some common sense conceptions of time. Jonathan just told us about some of these, but I think it's worthwhile to rehearse them and then pick on them from the point of view of physics. 
So here's one common sense conception of time. There's a preferred direction. Time flows from the past through the present to the future. And the way that we see that in the physical world, just in case you're sort of walking around and thinking, I don't see any flowing, think about various physical processes that you know. So think about something like taking an egg and accidentally dropping it, and it breaks into a million pieces. Have you ever dropped a million pieces of egg and seen it come together to form a whole egg? Right? That's something that doesn't happen. These type of processes, and soon we'll talk about them a little more, seems to only go from the past to the future. The reverse of the processes, right? So all the different pieces coming together to form an egg, we don't see that. So that's one common sense conception. Here's another one. Um, Jonathan also talked about this one. There's something very special about the present. We're always in the present. We're stuck in the present. The present is now. Anything that is, is now. The past has been, future will be, but the things that are real, that really exist, you can sort of knock on them, happen now. Second common sense conception. The third common sense conception is presupposed by the other two. Namely, the time exists. It's not an illusion. It's actually a fundamental nature of reality. And so what I want to do next is pick on each one of these and tell you a little bit about what philosophers of physics like me, right, so we're philosophers like Jonathan and Christy, but philosophers of physics specifically do. So here's some of the questions that philosophers of physics like me are interested in. We want to know how does physics work? Why does it work so well? Which part of our best physical theory should we take seriously because they tell us something about the world? And which parts are just there to give us, say, predictions or help us build better technological devices or things of the sort. Now, the question that's going to most interest us today is what do our best physical theories tell us about the nature of time? That's what we want to understand. Do our best physical theories tell us that the common sense conceptions that we saw before are well-grounded? That's where we're going. In order to do this, I want to look at three groups of physical theories. And I apologize, things are going to get a little technical, but we'll try to work through them slowly, and hopefully it'll be a, a satisfying type of uh, presentation and not too, not too um, confusing. The three groups of uh, physical theories are going to correspond to the three different conceptions that we talked about. The first, classical and quantum statistical mechanics, these are basically our best theories of matter. Everything in the world is made up of matter, made up of little particles. Our best theories about how these particles behave are classical and quantum statistical mechanics. Now, at this point, you may be scratching your head and asking yourself, I want to know about time. Say, if time has a direction, why, why do I care about matter? Well, remember how we can see the direction of time. We see something like an egg break into many, many pieces, but the pieces never come back together. Right? In order to study that, we need to study the pieces of the egg, the matter itself. And that's why we need our best theories of matter. Next, is the present special? Well, let's look at our best theories of space, time, and gravity. Namely, Einstein's special and general theories of relativity. That's what we'll do after that. And at the end, if there's time, we'll just gesture at what, what is known as um, theories of quantum gravity. Some of you may, may have heard of things like string theory and M-theory and all these things that border on the science fiction. These are theories of quantum gravity, and we'll talk a little bit about them. Okay. So, first question. Does time have a preferred direction? 
Is it the case that time flows from the past to the future? Well, we want to be a little bit more precise about what we mean when we talk about a preferred direction. And in order to do that, I need to introduce to you this concept of entropy. It may sound kind of odd, I don't know if you've ever heard of entropy before, but there's a sort of intuitive way to get a feeling for what it is. Entropy measures disorder or order. So if you look at the slide, this is a highly ordered state. Everything is clumped up together. That's a state of very low entropy. But if everything spreads out and you have a lot of disorder, that's a state of high entropy. Think about a room in your house. When you organize the room, right, that's going to be a state of very low entropy. Now what happens in your house if you let things sort of evolve naturally? Right? If you don't uh, make sure to put everything in place, it's going to be very disorganized. Things are going to be all over the place. And that's going to be a state of high entropy. Now, we see this type of behavior all over the place. This is what we identify as the thermodynamic era of time. We talked about eggs breaking. We talked about the room being disordered. Here are two other examples. Take some ice, put it on a, put it on a table. What's going to happen to the ice? It's going to melt. Now, we never see a puddle of water just come back together and form an ice cube. Right? That's another example of entropy increasing. Or the last example, take some molecules of gas that are starting in some localized area, <laughs> release them, and what happens? The gas spreads all over the room. Right? So we're very familiar with these situations. Sometimes they're rather uncomfortable, but they seem to be right, the part and parcel of the way we think about time. And so when we're asking, does time have a preferred direction, what we're really asking is, do statistical mechanics predict that entropy will increase always and towards the future? Do our best theories of matter predict this? And the answer in a nutshell is no. The answer in a nutshell is no. And so let me give you a feeling for why that's the case. We say that our best theories of matter, the laws of those theories are time, reversal, and variant. That sounds a lot of jargon that I'm throwing at you. Basically what it means is the following. Any physical processes that the theories allow to happen, if you reverse that process, it will also be allowed. And here's a way that you can get a feeling for this. Imagine that we're going to play a pool on a billiard table, and we're sort of zooming in the table. So all we're seeing is, is the table. We're not seeing the players from the outside. And this is the only thing that you see. You see one ball coming, hitting the other, and the ball going away. And I'm playing you a video, so you don't know whether this is running forward in time or I'm running it backwards in time. Right? For all you know, we could have started, hit the ball here, and this is actually the reverse. Right? If I ask you, how, how is the video working? Is it going forward in time or backwards in time? You're not going to be able to answer because this physical processes is allowed according to the laws of physics, and so is its reverse. So when gas starts in a localized state and expands to fill up the room, that's allowed according to the laws of physics. Well, what about all of the oxygen in the room suddenly coming together in a localized state just in the corner? Can that happen according to our best physical theories? The answer is yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so we're led to a kind of mystery. If a billion pieces of eggs just coming together and forming a whole egg. If something like that is possible, why don't we ever see it? And I'm not going to say much more about that here, but I do want to tell you what the take-home message is. This idea that time has a preferred direction 
is not supported by our best physical theories of matter. Not supported. Okay, we have two more, and let's check how we're doing on time. Good. So the next commonsensical intuition, remember, is that there's something very special about the present. That seems even clearer than this whole talk about directionality and time flowing. In order to investigate this claim, we want to look to our best theories of space, time, and gravity, Albert Einstein's special and general theories of relativity. This will get a little more technical, but we'll try to explain everything with pictures, so hopefully it'll be, um, it'll be fun. These theories work with things called space-time diagrams. These diagrams allow us to represent not only spatial relations, say I'm standing here and Christy and Jonathan are sitting there, but relations, temporal relations, how things move through time. Ultimately, space-time diagrams are going to represent possible universes, the way the universe could be like. That's where we're heading. So let's just try to understand what's going on here. You've got a person and you've got a tree. This axis right here, the horizontal axis, represents space. So they're one meter apart or a couple of feet apart. But this vertical axis is going to represent time. And you can see that although this person and, and tree are not moving through space, there's a sense in which they're always moving through time because the clock is always ticking. The way we represent this in a space-time diagram is with these streaks, and we call them world lines. This is the world line of a person moving through time but staying in place, and this is the world line of a tree moving through time and staying in place. Now, let's say I wanted to have a space-time diagram where the person actually is getting closer to the tree and then walking away. How would that look? Well, here's a picture of that. Tree stands in place but moves through time, the person moves both through space, gets closer to the tree, and then farther away. But it's all the time moving through time. Here's another example. Imagine you wanted to represent in a space-time diagram just the Earth rotating around the sun. And we were to do this by taking snapshots, a snapshot in January, a snapshot in April, and July, and October. Each one of these snapshots, each one of these planes, we call this a hypersurface of simultaneity. Right? This sounds very, very complicated. What we really want to concentrate on is this word simultaneity. It's very important for this idea that the present is special. A hypersurface of simultaneity, or a plane of simultaneity, is just a set of space-time points, all the events in space-time, all the events in the universe that are now. And these are all the events in the universe that are now, where by now we mean April. And these are all the events in the universe that are now, where by now we mean July. And when you stack them all together, you get a space-time diagram. Notice what's happening. The Earth is going around in a circle, but also moving through time. And you get this helical motion. Okay. Now, why is this important? Well, we want to try to represent in physics the concept of the now. So here's another attempt at doing that. Imagine we have an observer, and this observer is just standing through place and only moving through time. This plane right here, with all the number one, tells us all the different events that are simultaneous with the observer's 1 p.m. Right? So if I just look at my clock right now, and let's say I'm at 6.30 or something of the sort, right? at that exact snapshot, that exact moment, there's a lot of things that are simultaneous with that. You sitting over there, somebody over there falling asleep, somebody else scratching their head, something of the sort. Right? All of that is captured in this plane right here. 
And same thing for the plane that follows and the plane that follows, 2 p.m., 3 p.m. Now, how are we going to represent things? And this is key. Right, so just pay attention a little longer and then we'll move on. How are we going to represent things when an observer starts moving, when the world line starts tilting? Here's a representation of that. The second a world line starts tilting, you have an observer that's moving both through time and through space. But it turns out, and we can't get into the details of why this is the case, that whenever a world line is tilted, whenever an observer is not only moving through time but through space, their hypersurfaces of simultaneities, their nows, tilt as well. And why is that so important? Well, what that means is that for this observer, at 1 p.m., some of their nows will be in my past. And for me, at 1 p.m., some of my nows, things that are simultaneous with my now, are going to be in their future. Let me show you another picture of that, and then we'll just concentrate on the take-home message. Imagine if you have two spaceships. Right? Remember, it's a space-time diagram. Horizontal axis represents space. Vertical represents time. Two spaceships leave in two different directions. We have spaceship A, spaceship B, and each one has a clock. And so spaceship A has a 1 p.m., a 2 p.m., a 3 p.m., a 4 p.m., and the same thing for spaceship B. And these are the hypersurfaces of simultaneity for each one of the surfaces. What does that mean? It means that if I were to ask observer A in spaceship A, what is simultaneous, what is, sorry, what is simultaneous with your 4 p.m.? They would say, it's all the points here, including observer B's 3 p.m. And so things that are now for me are in B's past and vice versa. Things that are going to be now for B are in my past. And so if the now is real, it means the past and the future are also as real as the present because my past and my future is going to be simultaneous with somebody else's now. All that is to say, the past, present, and future are just as real according to our best theories of space, time, and gravity. And it leads you to sort of scratching your head and asking, well, why is it that we remember the past and not the future? And why is it that I can affect the future and not affect the past? And this is really good food for thought. But I want to concentrate on this last question over here. If the past, present, and future are all just as real, why is it that we're always traveling towards the future and we can't travel to the past? Why is it that it is impossible to travel back in time? And the answer to that is just that it is possible. <laughs> according to our best physical theories, according to the special and general theory of relativity, there's nothing in those theories, nothing in the laws that forbids time travel. This is a, an example of a space-time diagram where you have t time travel, where you're thinking about the universe as cylindrical. And so notice, this represents space, this represents time, and if you have an observer here, as time goes by, their world line will just loop on itself. And this represents going back in time. Right? Now, our universe is not like this, but if you take everything that we know about our universe and you consider our best theories of space, time, and gravity, the special and general theory of relativity, right, you can't deduce that time travel is forbidden in our universe. 
And when we think about models of time travel in our universe, you come up with these science fiction scenarios. But in some senses, right, they're completely allowed by the laws. You can have a situation where some spaceship enters a so-called wormhole and goes back in time. That's, that type of scenario is allowed. All this is to say, our best theories of matter don't support the idea that there's a preferred direction. And our best theories of space and time and gravity don't support the idea that the present is special. And they do support this model of eternalism that Jonathan talked about. Okay. So I'm about done. We only have two slides left. The only question that is left and we haven't talked about yet is, well, can we at least keep this idea that time is not an illusion and it exists and it's something real and it's something fundamental? Well, we may not be able to. When you look at theories of quantum gravity, these are theories that try to combine Einstein's general theory of relativity, our best theory of space and time, with our best theory of matter, quantum mechanics, or quantum field theory, or quantum statistical mechanics. And this is where you get things like string theory, and M theory, and all these wacky theories that you hear about. They're all works in progress. We don't have a final theory of everything just yet, but they all seem to have something similar. <coughs> Namely, in all of these theories, Time is not something that's fundamental. It pops out as a thing that physicists call emergent. So there's a real sense in which time is a bit of a, an illusory kind of thing. It's not fundamentally something that's there, according to these type of theories. And this supports a particular kind of philosophical model of time. Not eternalism, where everything is real, right? This kind of timeless model, where there's no time at all. So all that is food for thought, and I'll pass it back to, to Jonathan, who can tell us a little bit more about those kind of models. Cool. Okay, so with all of that said and done, right, uh, we've not yet said too much about why this particular account or these particular kinds of family of view that Eli described might lead you to deny that uh, reality is in fact timeless. And I'm just going to say a few little bits and pieces about uh, what exactly one of these models looks like uh, and why we might be minded to believe that, that timelessness is the right interpretation of that model. Okay. Uh, and, and I'm going to keep this super sketchy with the details. Uh, okay. Um, I have five minutes now. Not, okay. So, well, or do I? Uh, okay, right. Question, that's for the questions, right? How long I, in fact, have is, is open, right? Okay. So here's a view that was popularized uh, in a really accessible uh, book called The End of Time by Julian Barber, published in 1999. Uh, and he sketched a worldview that looks a little bit like this. Okay. So what there in fact exists uh, are a whole collection of what he called time capsules. But don't read too much into the name of these things. There's no time here. What you have at each one of these is a collection of three-dimensional objects. So things like you, me, tables, chairs, glasses, microphones, he says, reaching for all of the things that are in his immediate field of vision. All of those things uh, that we can see, or there's a collection of all those three-dimensional things, and, and those things exist. And there are lots of other similar collections of three-dimensional objects. Those things exist too. Not only the ones that we might think of as being past and present, but lots of other possible configurations of these 
as well. And I mean a lot of other possible configurations. Very, very, very many. Uh, and at each of these time capsules, what you have are things that we might call records of the way that the world was. But these aren't really temporal things. These are things like the kind of trace that an electron might leave uh, in a cloud chamber. Right? We can interpret them as in some way being the way that the world was. But there isn't really any temporal structure built into this three-dimensional collection of objects. And moreover, I said that there are all these different three-dimensional collections of objects. These aren't temporally connected to one another. Right, so we've got one collection of three-dimensional objects here, we've got another one over there. There's no earlier than, later than relation between these things. Right? There are no temporal relations between these three-dimensional collections at all. There is no temporal structure uh, in this model whatsoever. So no, no temporal relations between the time capsules. Now, why are we supposed to believe that, given all of these three-dimensional collections, reality is, is timeless in this kind of scenario? Well. Here's the idea. The most fundamental equation that we have that, that describes the universe simply doesn't make any mention of time at all. You won't find it anywhere. Um, and so when we look, as Eli says, we look at these theories and the way that they describe reality, well, these are the fundamental equations, and these fundamental equations do not make any mention of time whatsoever. And it seems like then there's a really natural interpretation of those theories. Uh, which is that they are timeless. Okay? So if you've got a particular equation that completely describes the fundamental structure of the way that the world is, and it doesn't talk about time, well, in that case, uh, don't posit any such thing as time. So goes the thought. And so what we should conclude from these models, where there is no mention of time in the most fundamental equations, is that in fact, time is not real. Uh, and I think that there we, we draw to a close, right? Eli uh, managed to massacre those first two intuitions that he talked about, right? We have this intuition, physics says no. We have this second intuition, the physics says no. The final intuition that Eli left us with was that, and time is real? Well, pretty plausibly, uh, again, regrettably, the physics says no. Uh, wh where, that, where that leaves us, uh, who knows, really? That's uh, for sure is running out of time. Somewhere, <laughs> somewhere like that, I guess. Okay. Do we want to? Well, maybe we'll do some questions now, and then we'll thank you guys questions. when you've when you've answered them to our satisfaction. <laughs> Hi, Bar. Hi, Bar. Um, okay, so anyone can take this. Anyone who wants to chime in at this point. Uh, so. Uh, to what extent should we take our common sense notion of time or the way we speak and think about time seriously, either in doing philosophy or in doing physics or both? And you guys might have some different views about the right way to approach this. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think on the one hand, there's an argument to be made that we should take our commonsensical notions of time very seriously. Um, whether we're doing science or whether we're doing physics, we're trying to capture what's out there in the world and the way we observe the world. I do think, though, that in the case of time, it's a little bit different. And the reason is, imagine if I you know, drop something to the ground, you see it fall down, and you ask, oh, why does that happen? What explains it? Something like a gravity or the curvature of space-time. Nobody's going to argue about the fact that the glass fell to the ground. 
But when you talk about our commonsensical notion of time, that's not as observable and out there in the world, right? It's not people disagree about whether or not time flows or not. And so I think that in this context, we should really go with the physics and try to interpret what physics tells us about the world, and that's the way we should think about time. But that's my view of it. Yeah, uh, so, so kind of disappointingly, I don't really disagree. Um, <laughs> oh. Sorry. Um, I mean, a, a couple of other things that I think I'd just add to, to, what, to what Eli said there. I mean, in answer there, you're talking about um, needing to explain what's out there in the world. And there are some things out there in the world that need explaining that it's not totally clear we can just read straight from the physics. Uh, one of those is our experience of time. That's going to need explaining. Uh, and it's not totally clear to me that just looking to the physics completely explains that. Maybe we need to then be looking at the psychology to, to give some kind of account of what's going on over there or uh, other disciplines. Uh, there's some fascinating work done on the way in which uh, various insects respond to temporal cues that I think is very valuable and very interesting. Um, the other thing to say is as well that uh, all of the temporal language that physicists use uh, when constructing their theories, when testing their theories, is exactly the same language that you and I use. Right? We talk about things being now, things going to happen, uh, and all of that natural association that we pack into those terms uh, are also going into the work that the physicists are doing. And so to that extent, right, explaining how and why uh, those ideas come about, those things like uh, the, the results that Eli talks about, they're out in there in the world. They're in need of explanation. Uh, and to that extent, we need to take them seriously. Uh, I don't think that that then means that we get to trample up and down all over the best physics, right? But there are more data points that need accommodating. Absolutely. And I think if I could disagree with myself a little bit, um, <laughs> I did not at all mean to suggest, and I think that this is important to, to throw out there, and some physicists may disagree with me, that you can just go to class, study physics, and just read from the physics what physics tells you about the nature of the world. It turns out that when you try to understand what physics actually tells you about reality, there are many different interpretations that are going to be consistent with the underlying physics. And that's where physicists who are interested in foundational work or philosophers of physics like myself have a lot of work to do. Right? So philosophers certainly do have a lot of work to do, even if you want to take the physics seriously. Yes. <laughs> Yay! We're not out of a job. Glad we solved that one. Yeah. yeah. So do you think we can just figure out what are plausible models of time by doing philosophy as a first port of call? And then, uh, as it were, so this is something a bit like the model, I guess, that Jonathan outlined at the beginning. So you start off with the, the philosophical intuitions, and then uh, after that you uh, wheel in the physics to kind of... Um, guide where theory goes? Or do you think there's some better methodology that we should be employing? Do you want to start with this one? Yeah, so uh, in, in very much in the spirit of Eli's second comment there, I'd like to start by just disagreeing ever so slightly with myself and, and the initial presentation. So I, I gave you that idea of um, starting from the intuitions and then model building. I, I think there's nothing wrong with starting in other places as well. Um, I think that what we normally do is we normally start from those intuitive models and then we build out. But, but equally, if you just think about the way that, that uh, society generally is connected, the idea that our ways of thinking about time are completely insulated and isolated from the way that physical theories are being developed and interpreted, I think that's just false. So I think that even if I were to try and do my, the, the kind of, toy idea I gave you is, well, I'm, I'm just gonna sit down, I'm just gonna think, I've got those intuitions, I'm gonna try and accommodate them. 
Where are those intuitions coming from? Well, some of them are coming from the physical theories anyway. Some of them are coming from ideas in physics. So it's a much messier story than the one that I painted anyway. Uh, and then nothing wrong with starting in other places too and seeing what happens when you bring these ideas together. Yes, no, I, I agree with all of that. So I th <laughs> we're wonderfully articulated. Uh, <laughs> the only thing that I would add um, is, you know, if you look for where there is a job for models, of philosophical models of time to do, here's one place where I think philosophy always has a lot to do. Lots of times scientists, or let's talk about physics, physicists in the history of physics will reach a roadblock. There suddenly will be a kind of crisis, a foundational problems, really difficult problems that we don't know how to solve. And I think that at that point in time, looking to philosophy and looking, say, to philosophical models of time can be very helpful. And interestingly, from a history of science perspective, it's exactly at those type of roadblocks that physicists themselves start becoming, talking more philosophical, reading philosophers. Um, Albert Einstein's story is, is, is very much falls in line with something of the sort. When Einstein was trying to figure out what would become the special on general theories of relativity, he started reading philosophers like David Hume and Kant, and people of the sort. So I think that that's where there's some room there. So I wanted to go back to um, something in your earlier slides. So you, you flagged that there is this uh, mystery that arises because um, the laws are time reversal invariant and they permit you know, eggs to reform into from, from cracked to uncracked, which would be great. Um, but in fact, as you point out, we don't typically, in fact, probably none of us have ever seen that happen. Um, so it seems like there's a, regardless of what we think about whether time has a direction, it seems at least that there's a, an appearance as of there being a direction. And it would be nice to know why it seems as though it has a direction, even if it doesn't. Um, so is there anything that we can say that speaks to this? Yes, yes, so there is. Um, so we mentioned that this thermodynamic era of time is mystery. And in fact, both physicists and philosophers of physics have offered a kind of explanation. And in the literature, this is known as the past hypothesis. And basically, the idea is as follows. If we assume that the universe started in a very ordered, low-entropy state, and our models, best models of the beginning of the universe seem to suggest that indeed that's the case, then what statistical mechanics predicts is that entropy of the entire universe will always rise. So you're going to have a kind of thermodynamic error of time, but only with very high probability. That means if I put a puddle of water on the table, there is some probability that it will spontaneously become an ice cube. The thing is that the probability is very low. And so if I want to see this happening, I'm going to have to wait along for a very long time. <laughs> How long? Longer than the age of the universe. So there is a kind of explanation there. Right? Um, there are issues with this explanation, but maybe in the Q&A we'll, we'll bring it up. So then I wanted to pick up on something that uh, Jonathan raised right at the end when we're talking about um, theories of quantum gravity. And in particular, you um, briefly outlined the Barber-style version. Um, uh, and I think there are, there are some other versions that um, Elay sort of gestured towards. And as you put it, uh, in those theories, fun at the fundamental level, there is no time. So you don't find a little t-index anywhere. Um, and then you concluded from that that 
you, you, the relatively modest conclusion that, well, that looks like fundamentally there is no time because perhaps time is some kind of emergent thing. And uh, you sometimes see d somewhat different conclusions being drawn here from what about those various theories. So sometimes you see the rather stronger conclusion that it, we should just conclude that time doesn't exist. Um, so I wondered what, what you guys had to say or what your thoughts were about um, this connection between fundamentally there being no time and what we should say about whether uh, what we, we, we the folks should think about whether or not there's time if something like those theories is right. Yeah. So I, I think that there are, there are better and worse ways that the argument gets presented. Um, and uh, in fact, I think this is one of the, the, the areas where philosophers can kind of try and help clean things up a little bit. So the, the really, really quick and dirty version of the argument for the unreality of time goes, you don't get uh, T mentioned in the fundamental equations, so there ain't no such thing as time. Now, that's awfully quick. It's right. just awful. It's not. I mean, it, it's also awful, right? <laughs> so I mean, here's a way of, of thinking about the argument and its consequences elsewhere, right? It seems to be a particular instance of a general claim that if something doesn't feature in the fundamental equation, then it doesn't exist. It doesn't get mentioned in a fundamental equation, it doesn't exist. Well, you're all sitting on something. Uh, we're all sitting on chairs, I assume. And, well, I, I don't know of any fundamental equation that says there are chairs. But I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy that, that tables and chairs exist. Or even if you don't like tables and chairs, I'm, I'm pretty happy that there are other things out there that we might want to say that exist um, that, that don't feature in fundamental equations. So that, that, really, that really fast version of the argument looks way too quick for my liking. Um, now, there are more nuanced versions uh, of the argument which uh, don't go for the kind of barber-style view, but which are kind of structurally similar, uh, and that say that you've got something a little bit like these time capsules. You've got some relations that connect up some of these different things. But then for whatever kind of reason, the relations doing those connecting up things uh, aren't sufficient to count as temporal relations in any kind of way. Now, teasing apart exactly what's meant there as being sufficient for that relation to be temporal, that's a really hard question, right? I mean, the clearly there are some relations that I can stick between things that mean the, uh, that they're not temporal relations. Uh, the relation being an aunt of, right? If someone's the aunt of someone else, it doesn't mean that they exist uh, later than them, earlier. Right? It's, it's just not a temporal relation, right? It's a familial relation. It's just the wrong kind of thing altogether. Spatial relations similarly don't seem to be temporal relations. So, okay, fine, right? Not every relation gets to count as a temporal relation. But maybe some others are, are sufficient to be counted as temporal relations. Maybe they've got enough structure packed into them that they give rise to temporal reality, even though they themselves aren't temporal, would be the thought. Yeah. I would add something about chairs. Um, <laughs> okay, is this where we get our big disagreement going? No, I, I, oh. I don't think, I mean, we could try. Let's but, go, uh, yeah. Um, no, so I think it's a very good example, because think about something like you know, the type of wooden benches that, you, that you're sitting on. Um, if you ask fundamentally what is a wooden chair, and this is, let's say, before we discovered the atomic theory of matter, you would say, well, fundamentally there are no chairs, they're just pieces of wood. We put them together and then we call this thing a chair, but fundamentally there's wood or lumber. Um, but after discovering the atomic theory of matter, we know that Wood is made out of molecules, which are made out of atoms. And so it's okay to say that fundamentally there's no chairs because all there is is conglomeration of, of particles and still say, but you know, really at our scale, at this kind of higher level um, 
human world, we can still talk meaningfully about chairs. And I think that the same type of story is going to be, ha- we're going to have to tell the same type of story with time somehow. Uh, how those details go, I'm not sure, of course, but um, that's, that's the idea. Well, that uh, nicely brings us to the, the next thing I want to talk about, which is, uh, so setting aside the thought that there might be something like an emergent time, which looks for all the world like time, but somehow emerges out of some more fundamental reality. Um, if we were to think about this much more um, bold claim that there's just no time, um, it seems like we want to, as philosophers, ask a question, well, what does that even mean? What would it even mean to say that, um, in that bold sense, that there's no time? You might think that uh, it's sort of obvious, it's an obvious datum that in some sense, some perfectly good sense, there's time. Um, so how should we interpret these kinds of, the claims that some physicists are making, that there's no time even at sort of at the emergent level? How can we even make sense of what, of what that would mean for us? I don't know. You should take this one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that would mean. Yeah. So there's a. I'm, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase uh, to Augustine. Uh, when no one asks me what what time is, I understand perfectly well what it is. And as soon as someone asks me, I haven't got a clue. And right, it's really tempting. So when someone says, right, just there's there's no such thing as time, right? Really, even even at this emergent level, at the the, the the level that we occupy, there's no such thing as time. And you kind of go, well, oh, what 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 was that supposed to be in the first place exactly? Because the concept that we have of time, if if we have one, I think is is really hard to articulate. If anyone thinks it's not, come see me afterwards. I'll write it down, publish it, perfect. Okay, but it seems to be really hard to get a grip on uh, a really clean concept of what time is. One, one tentative thought might be that if you've got uh, the truth of our temporal discourse, so the sort of things that we say about time as coming out true, then that's going to be enough to say that time's real. So to give that a bit of color, if, if I can say truthfully that my daughter did drop the jam on my trousers this morning, uh, and if I can say that I am now speaking to you, well, then I've got true past tense claims. and I've got true present tense claims. And maybe if I can say that certain things will happen, so you will all ask fantastic questions, um, then right, maybe, maybe that's enough to say then that in some sense or other, uh, time's real. Maybe. I think the, the only thought that I would add to that um, is that perhaps, and this is a complete guess, um, if fundamentally there, there is no time, and it's not the case that time is emergent, but time is not real, it's illusory, um, maybe the type of story that we can tell is that, and this is a kind of Kantian story for those of you that are familiar with Kant, but the idea is that there's something about um, what it means to be the type of beings that we are, who cognize the world the way we are, which necessitates interpreting all the data that comes in in a particular framework. And that framework is the framework of space and time. Um, if it's, it's as if you're, imagine that you were to put uh, glasses on with lenses that are pink, the entire world would look pink to you, right? It's not that the world is pink, it's just you're wearing these pink glasses. So it's the si- same type of idea, only the glasses that we're wearing as um, these type of beings that have the kind of cognition that, that we have are ones that see everything in space and time. Right, we interpret all the data in space and time. Maybe some sort of story of a sort can be told. Yeah. 
Well, that seems like a really nice place to open up the floor for people to ask whatever questions they would like to ask. Hi, uh, thanks for that uh, illuminating talk. So I'm coming from a bit of a physics background, so the questions will probably be physics-y. But so you mentioned that um, the fundamental equations of physics don't make reference to time. But to my knowledge, the two main pillars of modern physics, which are widely accepted, uh, the general theory of relativity and quantum field theory, they all seem to make reference to a notion of time. Uh, I'm not sure about quantum gravity because it's, it's largely still conjectural, right? Like, there's no actual experimental verification of any sort. So that, that, that would be my first question. And my second question would be also, um, so yes, under special theory of relativity, time is relative. So present and uh, future and past, it's kind of a relative notion. But it also states that causality, um, that cannot be violated. So simultaneity may be relative, but you can't alter the causal relationships between events, right? So I, I'm interested in um, what your views on that might be. Um, so first of all, you're, you're right. Uh, so I don't think that we were talking about theories like quantum mechanics or quantum field theory or the general theory of relativity. The idea um, was more about theories of quantum gravity. And you're also right that they're conjectural. And so um, from my own perspective, there's theories like the general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics is which one of our most confirmed theories that we have in the history of mankind. Those are theories that we need to take very seriously. Um, whereas theories of quantum gravity, they're works in progress. And so maybe we don't need to take this idea that time is non-fundamental very seriously. And so I agree, I agree with that. Um, the second question was, you're asking, what do we think about so this? The causal relations, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I think, I think there, and we'll see what, what Jonathan thinks about this. I think there I would, I would disagree on several different levels. And so um, I don't think that physics supports the idea that there are causal relations and structure in the world. It's true that physicists use this language, causal language, but all they mean, if you're familiar with this type of things, is that if, let's say, I'm in the backwards light cone, I can, I'm causally related to the forward light cone or something of the sort. Right? That's very different from what we mean by causation. Right? We have a much thicker notion in mind. Um, moreover, this type of universe that I presented before, the cylindrical universe, or something more realistic in the general theory of relativity, something like a, a girdle space-time, you have these closed time-like curves. And so it is the case that there is a real sense in, in such universes where like the present will affect the future, will affect the past, will, and so on and so forth. Um, so I don't think that physics sustains a kind of strong, robust notion of causation. Um, I don't know what Jonathan thinks about it. What Eli said. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, I was wondering, okay, so you said that causality basically doesn't exist. I, was, uh, I don't know if I would say that. <laughs> continue oh, with the... That was a bold well, claim you made there, my yeah. friend. Yeah. What are the implications to free will with everything that you've said? I believe it's presentism. So. I feel like you should take this one. Uh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, So, so I, I think I think Eli's absolutely right that that there's 
there's no move to saying, there's no immediate read-off from the physics that there's no such thing as, as causation. What, what we might say is that uh, physics doesn't presuppose it or require this kind of thick notion uh, of causation, uh, but it may be there anyway. Uh, it may be something that, that's additional and over and above that kind of uh, physicist notion of causation that's in there. And, and that, that would be uh, fine and I, and I guess unsurprising in, in some ways. Um, free will. Yeah, that's always tough. Um, <laughs> so here's, uh, I, and sorry, I, 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 I say that and people laugh. That's not in any way to denigrate the question. It's tough because it's tough, right? It's a genuinely hard thing to say something about. Um, notice what we're going to do when we start worrying about this. We're going to start off with some intuitions that we're free in some kind of a way. We're then going to look at the models. We're going to test them. We're going to see what's compatible. We're, we're doing the same kind of philosophical work that we were describing right at the outset. So let's be eternalists for a second, right? So we're here. There are some things that are going to happen later on. They are out there in our future. Uh, we're adopting the kind of physical models that, that Eli was, gesturing, uh, was, was describing and that it looked like they're supported by our best physics. Are we then free? Well, here's where I go for the classic philosopher's response. What do you mean by free? <laughs> right? So here's, here's one answer. Uh, one answer is that I'm free if I could do something else. I could have done otherwise. Okay. Now, there's all that stuff out there in my future. So in some sense, that's fixed. But that only tells you what I'm actually going to do. It doesn't tell you what I could have done or what I might have done, or what might have been going to be the case. So if you think that just you know, it being possible for some future state to arise is sufficient for free will, then there's no obvious and immediate route to saying, just because we've got this physics, uh, we're not free. Uh, because this is just saying what will happen, not what must happen. And if that feels like a sneaky cheat answer, that's probably because it is. But then we come down to the question of, okay, well, in which case, what exactly do we mean by free will? What exactly needs to be going on under the hood there uh, for those kinds of claims to come out right? I, I agree. <laughs> oh, one, I mean, you might think that the, the question is particularly pressing for the quantum gravity folk who have a fairly a strong conception of timelessness because you might think as I, I assume you're thinking here, that um, causation is sort of necessary for free will, because what would it be to act freely? Well, surely, whatever exactly it is, it'll have something to do with having causal powers, right? It'll be, it's really hard to see how you could think you were free if there's no sense in which you can bring anything about. And I was thinking, I, I assume you're thinking that, look, you might also have the following fairly plausible thought, which is that it's hard to see how you can have causation if you've got nothing like time, because you might think, surely, that's some kind of precondition. So you, then you might make the, the next kind of inferential move and think, well, then it looks like these theories of quantum gravity are um, at least prima facie in tension with the idea that we could be kind of freely acting agents. And it seems like that seems like an excellent worry to press for the person who thinks that there's some sense of timelessness or someone who can't tell enough of a story about how time could emerge from the fundamental stuff. I mean, whatever story they tell, you would hope that they are going to be able to recapture something that's causation-like enough that you and I uh, can have a you know, conversation about how it is that we're going to get home this evening. And if they can't do that, then it looks like the theory is kind of, you might think, you, you and I might think the theory would be dead in the water because it seems like we can have that conversation and it does look like we have those kind of causal powers. Thank you. Seems to me you're running into a 
basically a fundamental problem that's either with the sound or with the language the language is based in our experience of the world which is time-based and dynamic all the theories up until this point have been time-based and dynamic so so let's call it emergence emerge is a process it happens in time so to talk about time being emergent it's a it's it's problematic to say to the so at least so at a philosophical level or at a conceptual level don't, don't we run into sort of an event horizon um well, let me say a little something maybe you can uh i think that I think that what we'd want to say is that we have to stray away a little bit from the usual way we talk when we conceptualize about what emergence is. I mean, think about the example that I gave before. Um, there's a sense in which a chair is no more than a conglomeration of particles, but at the same time, the chair, in some senses, emerges from the agglomeration of particles. But it's not that there's first a conglomeration of particles and then the, ch right, the, the chair and is just the particles. They're always there. Um, and so I think that the concept of emergence need not be diachronic, it could be synchronic. And so we're, we're going to stray away a little bit from the way we talk in order to flesh that concept out. Did you? Um, yeah, I mean, <coughs> the, the, the only thing that I'd, I'd want to throw in is that I think I completely agree that the, the concept that the physicists need to be working with there uh, can't be the ordinary notion that we all have of emerging via some kind of ongoing process. That, that has to be right. Um, but it's an interesting question about exactly how even then we unpack that term of art for them. Right? So um, it's not the ordinary notion that we all have of something emerging through a process. Great. So it's not some uh, relation that spans times. We might want to be a little bit wary about saying it's synchronic, though, right? So if, if the, the fundamental base is timeless, then we don't want to say that the thing emerges at the same time as the fundamental thing, right? It, it looks like it's going to need to be uh, achronic, I guess. Um, and then, okay, good. Now, what exactly do we mean by emergence here at all? And I mean, the, the normal kind of story that gets told here is that it's something like... Uh, modal covariation, so possibly covarying, where you get this kind of stuff, this kind of stuff comes with it. So where you get this kind of fundamental base, you get this other stuff up here as well. That's just what happens in all of these different possible scenarios. That, that general idea is the one that I think I philosophers, physicists are reaching for. Um, but whether you can make sense of that timelessly, I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to disagree with with Eli, I, I, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm disagreeing. I'm 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 not as I'm not totally confident that the notion can be spelled out and unpacked, just because I don't think I've quite seen it done. I guess. Mm -hmm. um, maybe just in order to push the disagreement a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> the the example that I tried to give with the chair is one that sort of you you zoom in, you see the particles, you zoom out, you see a chair. Um, but I, I, th I think that we can take that concept to the next level and, and do that zoom in zooming out, but not necessarily be tied down or married to something like space, show zooming in and zooming out, or, or time, right? When you do this zooming in, zooming out, you're talking about differences in scale, the macroscopic scale, the macro scale, and you can think about differences in scale on the level of something like energies, or maybe something like that is fundamental, and then time pops out or space pops out. So I'd be a little bit more optimistic about our ability to articulate something um, 
regarding time being emergent. You know, so. We could we could push the disagreement a little further if you wanted. Ooh, <laughs> Ooh go Maybe. for it. Uh, um, so just a little bit more uncertainty. Let me let me not describe this as, as an out and out disagreement, but um, we want to say then that there there is this scale variance that we can generate. Um, we're going to have to be really cautious when we're doing that to spell out that notion without making any use of temporal concepts at all. Uh, and, and in particular, this is, is worrying me a little bit. Uh, because we better not mean is now. Right? Uh, we better not mean is going to be or has been or, or something like that because this is supposed to be some timeless notion. Mm -hmm. Now, now, sure, maybe, maybe that can be done. Um, but, but at least, I mean, picking up on the original point, which I took to be that you know, we've got this language, it's shot through with temporal notions. There's going to be a really tricky unpacking job to be done there, but I'm, 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 I'm still going to say I'm uncertain about. Yeah. I think we should stop. Uh, too much disagreement. Ah, philosophers not is not very, <laughs> yeah. very good. Just want to start off by saying that I'm quite comfortable with the idea that there's no uh, concept of time, so I'll just start there. I have a question. Um, Towards the end of the presentation, you said it's possible to go back in time in theory by uh, going through some sort of wormhole between two points in the universe or the space time. Uh, obviously, to uh, generate that wormhole, you need some sort of extremely strong gravitational or similar uh, event. Uh, normally, we talk about black holes for that, uh, which has an event horizon. From memory, uh, if you go through an event horizon, you lose information. What time should it exist? be an example of information and hence whatever comes up the other end has no knowledge of where it came from and hence it hasn't gone back in time. <laughs> <laughs> I think Christy should take this one. Huh? Um, um, I think this talk of wormholes in the spaceship going in and coming out is supposed to be illustrating a more general point. And the idea is that if you look at the general theory of relativity, you can think about it in the following way. There's these things called the Einstein field equations, and they basically tell us what are the possible universes we can have given some constraints, given a certain way that things like energy and matter are going to be dispersed and space-time will be curved. That's the language that we talked. So the general theory of relativity is like a book of possible universes. It tells us the different possible universes that we can have. Question. Do some of those universes have closed time-like curves? The type of curves that we saw before where a world line can, in principle, go back on itself. And that's what I'm going to call time travel. Answer, yes. Right. How do we practically bring about a wormhole and jump into an event horizon and get stretched out? We're not going to survive. That, that, those kind of details we'd have to turn to first the physicists and eventually the engineers if it ever becomes practical. I'm, I'm not sure. So um, I had one uh, question. You basically tested one of the intuitions, which was that now is special. Mm. Uh, and you then used uh, special relativity to show that all different observers have different um, uh, hyperplanes of simultaneity. And then sort of said, well, so there's no absolute time. Now, I would say that my intuition of now is actually not that there is a universal now that's special. My intuition is that my now is special and that it's special for all the other people on my hyperplane of simultaneity. So I wasn't quite, wasn't quite clear to me how 
those two things actually ruled out the concept of, of now. It, it just ruled out the concept of an absolute now. Yeah, great. Shall I? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah so, so I'm... Yes. Um, so that's absolutely right. And what, what's happened in the philosophical literature and the philosophy of physics literature when, it, when those two things intersect has been that the starting intuition that people have taken has actually been that there is this absolute now. Um, and that is what gets violated in those kinds of cases that, that, that were described. And one of the things that people have said in response to that is actually exactly the kind of picture that, that you've just described, whereby, well, I, I can't recover a, 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 an absolute now right the way across the universe, but for me, here, now, I mean, I've got that, right? Uh, and so maybe I want to claim that, uh, well, I've got to try and preserve that intuition that I hear now I'm special. How am I going to do that? Well, one model of, of reality you could go for is here nowism. And this is a fairly, fairly, fairly brutal view, right? It's, it's not just that uh, only present objects exist, it's just that the only the things that exist here, oh, sorry, only the things that are here and now exist, and that preserves that intuition. Um, that, that view is, uh, it's, 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 it's a challenge to maintain um, because it seems to say things like, well, look, uh, Nottingham's not here and now, and as Christy mentioned, I've come from the University of Nottingham, and does that, does that mean it doesn't exist? Um, that that, that kind of feels a bit weird and a bit wacky. So that's one model that people have adopted in response to that sort of conversation. Sure, but you could imagine a case where I'm accelerated relative to it and I would be right. Uh, and then it would still seem really weird to say that that thing isn't, isn't there. Other things that you can do are people have said that uh, actually the, the, the descriptions that you give of reality are relative to a frame. So when we say that only present objects exist, what we mean is exactly what you just said. And you can't give a frame-independent complete description of reality. Uh, that kind of view has been pushed a couple of times in the philosophical literature. Uh, I don't think it's got too much traction therein, but it's kind of a complicated case to see exactly why. So yeah, I mean, in short, yeah, people have done exactly that, um, and it's been interesting to see how the details work out. <laughs> My question is about entropy, <laughs> which you mentioned earlier, and going from order to disorder and, and vice versa. Um, uh, in a closed system, if entropy changes, something else has to give. In the universe, if the entropy changes, if it's not static, if it does change, does something else have to give? If we create order, if we make things more ordered, does something else have to change? And is there a propagation? Um, should I? Or do yeah, you know, you, know, you feel go. Free, feel you free to kick off, it. man. <laughs> so let me, I'm, I'm not sure if, I, if, if there's much to say as far as um, how time is defined. I think that... Um, in lots of these contexts, we have an intuition for what it means for time to pass. And then when we talk about defining time, we talk about measuring time. And so in the context of, say, the special theory of relativity, time is just defined as you know, the hand of your personal clock moving. Right? But there's something misleading uh, when you say that time is defined in this manner because what's actually happening is you're measuring, you're measuring time. Um, if you think that that's defining time, you're conflating between two things that 
philosophers call metaphysics and epistemology. Metaphysics has to do with what things are, time passing, and epistemology has to do with how we know about them, how we say measure them. Um, now, there may be other characterizations of time in different theories that I may, may be not familiar with. Your last part of your question had to do with how do we define time in timeless? For the definition of time or for how? So that's a very good question, but I think I, I don't know enough about theories of quantum gravity to, to, to say that. So I, um, it's a philosophy talk. I feel I should say something about Aristotle, just for the hay. Uh, so, <laughs> so Aristotle said that uh, time is a number of change with respect to the before and after. Uh, there and, you and, go. I, <laughs> and I guess, right, you can sort of see the idea that's being gestured towards there is it's a number of change, so it's kind of a, a, an in-principle countable change, um, which... It looks like it's going to be really hard to make sense of without thinking of it as being some kind of movement over time. Um, so that kind of thing then is going to feed very naturally into the kind of measurement talk that, that you were making there, Eli, that you know, we, we can measure these, these number of changes, or these changes of location, or I think the, so the SI units, the, the particular number of oscillations of a cesium atom, right? That's the kind of thing that we can measure, we can get behind. Um, that's a very Aristotelian notion uh, of, what, of what time is. Um, so, with all of that held fixed, then what do we say about the, the quantum, gravitation, quantum gravitational case? Uh, I don't know. Um, so, I suppose you've got these three-dimensional things, uh, these collections of three-dimensional objects. There's no change at any of them. Um, and if there's no change at any of them, and I guess if there's no change across any of them, then that's going to be on this Aristotelian notion that I'm now pushing at you as the gospel truth, um, then, then you're not going to get uh, time being real at that level uh, in that kind of way. I, that, that might be one way to unpack it. It's a great question. Yeah. Uh, what came first, time or matter? Because it, time's been relegated to the fourth dimension. And why wasn't it relegated to the first dimension if that was the first thing that came around? The chicken. <laughs> <laughs> no, um... I think that on current cosmological models, right, the universe starts with the Big Bang, and so sort of space and time and matter sort of come into being all at once. But um, I, I would like to talk a little bit about this idea that time is the fourth dimension. Um, you hear this all over the place, and it's supposed to be very so illuminating. There's three dimensions of space, and time is the fourth dimension, and somehow that's supposed to make some sort of light bulb go off. But... When you think about it, um, what we mean when we're doing mathematical physics, that time, when we say time is the fourth dimension, is just that in order to pin down an, pin down an event in space-time, we need four numbers. Uh, three for space and one for time. And that's the sense in which time is the fourth dimension. Um, as far as, as I know, I don't know a kind of deeper philosophical sort of take-home message from that. And so I, I just thought I'd mention, mention that. But uh, do you have any ideas about what came first, time or matter? I don't. No. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, just very, very quickly, if, if you play with the Aristotelian notion that we were talking about, that time is a number of change, uh, you need some things to be changing to do the, the temporal stuff, then I guess you need the matter first before it can start changing, yeah. would be the thought. I, yeah. I mean, so inevitably, when we get down to talking about those those the first event, the opening stuff, it's really, really hard. And 
the Aristotelian view that I've just suggested may well not be right. Uh, and, and for the kinds of, for one reason, the kind of reasons that you're talking about, but also it seems to sit really badly um, with uh, the kind of the four-dimensional geometric kinds of descriptions that we get. But yeah, it, different views are going to give you different accounts. Hello. Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Uh, so when you were uh, describing sort of the scepticism of time to do with how you don't even talk about them in the fundamental equations in physics, um, I thought it was similar to how physics also doesn't really try and explain it all qualia, and consciousness in particular qualia. And then you were saying with the insect and the rose-tinted uh, glasses that time might just be part of those glasses that were here. So I'm asking, is your scepticism of time kind of a scepticism of qualia? Um, I don't think I'm skeptic about time. Uh, so I don't know if that's a position. I'm not trying to defend that position. I was just saying um, perhaps that's what theories of quantum gravities are saying to us, and maybe that's um, one way to make sense of that. Um, so now the question would be... Our understanding of time is kind of wrapped up in our experience of it. Right. And so if physics doesn't at all try and talk or explain experience in qualia at all, um, does that mean that sort of skepticism of qualia creates a skepticism of time? Well, I mean, I, this I think has to do a little bit with what Jonathan said before, that j just because something isn't mentioned in a theory or in a fundamental equation, even if this equation is supposed to govern the universe in some sense, doesn't mean that it's not, it could be just out of the domain of the theory in some sense. Um, and so I don't think it, it follows from taking physics seriously that you need to be a skeptic about qualia. Um, for some of you, it, uh, you may not know, but should we say a word about what qualia is? Uh, uh, in that case, I'll pass it on to my colleague, Jonathan. Oh, no, you won't. Philosophical. <laughs> no. uh, right. Good. I wasn't expecting that. Um, okay, so I guess it's like the, the what-it's-likeness of experience. That's right. Are we happy yeah. with that? Uh, so there's a particular feel that experiences seem like they have to us. Uh, that's the claim. And, and that feel, that what it's like to have the experience, uh, that's what we might call a qualia or qualia in general. And it doesn't look like those things appear in fundamental physics. doesn't look like they appear in chemistry. doesn't look like they appear in biology, straightforwardly. Do we think that there are such things? Well... His one view, you know, I've just said that we all have these experiences. They all have that nature to us. So to that extent, it looks like we're motivated to believe in them, uh, even though they're not appearing anywhere in those theories. Uh, I guess that, that might be one way of connecting those two things up. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not sceptical either. Yeah. It's hard to see how physics could ultimately be sceptical of qualia explicated that way. After all, uh, foundationally, you're in the business of observations. Right. And ultimately, observations bottom out in people, in, in things seeming a certain way to people. And yeah. if there things don't, if there's no sense in which things seem a certain way, it's really hard to see how you observe anything and how there could be any physics. So there better be some sense in which physicists are not skeptical of qualia, right? Otherwise, I don't know what they think they're doing, man. <laughs> Well, I, I think it would depend on the type of model of time that you're, that you're working with. And this, Jonathan talked about different type of models of time. Um, there may be one where there's a beginning, but there's no end, and so there's infinity in one direction. Or maybe there's an end, but there's no beginning. Or there's both a beginning and an end, and then time wouldn't be um, infinite. 
I think that on current cosmological models, we, try, we think about the Big Bang as the beginning of time. And so there's actually a kind of starting point. And so it's not infinite in, in that direction. Um, did you want to? Yeah, I mean, there's, so there's, there's a, there are some other, certainly uh, sociological, cultural, culturally well-developed models of time that, that have some connection to some physical models that don't have a beginning and don't having a, have an end. And, and of course, those ones are just where time is itself uh, effectively uh, has, a, has a circular structure. Um, so there's no beginning to time on that model because time is just a bit like a, a, a donut, I guess. Space time is like a donut. Um, there's no beginning to that. There's no end to that because you just have this particular uh, closed structure. So I, I guess no beginning and no end doesn't automatically get us to infinity, though it's, I guess, kind of tempting to think that if we get both of those things, then, yeah, we yeah. might well end up with it. So the, the cylindrical universe that we saw before yeah. is exactly one of the sort, right? If, if this is the axis of time, there is no beginning, there is no end, it just keeps on going. But it's also not infinite, right? A circle yeah. is not infinite. Hello? Hello? Yeah. So um, being literal... Um, Relativity always talks about the fabric of uh, space-time. If there is no time, does it mean that it's just the fabric of space? Or does it mean that space is also not real? Or is just that time is <coughs> behaves in a different way that we actually... is real, but is, is behaving different that, that we know, or that we think? This idea that there, that there is no time fundamentally comes outside of the context of relativity theory, but in the context of quantum theories of gravity. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that there's only space? Well, not exactly. Space is also going to be this emergent thing. Space-time is going to be this emergent type of entity on um, approaches to quantum gravity. And so um, it, it won't make any sense to talk about the fabric of space-time anymore fundamentally on these theories. Does that get at your question a little bit? Yeah, so okay. that would mean that yeah, if, if time is not real, that means that space doesn't also have a meaning. So I, I think in the context of theories of quantum gravity, I, d I don't know if you know more about, but I think that space-time is supposed to be emergent, both space and time. Yeah. yeah. What about the concept of synchronicity? It's it connect with time, so then synchronicity is also imaginary, doesn't exist, or what is that? Do you want to... Yeah, so I mean, I, you, you might have a particular use of synchronicity in mind, but I, I, I guess I would think of synchronicity as having two states changing in the same way uh, as one another, uh, as they evolve, uh, at, at the same time, crucially. Uh, and I guess if you've lost any temporal structure in the kind of way that we've talked about uh, as being suggested by some of these more conjectural physical theories, then, yeah, you're going you're gonna to lose synchronicity too. Yeah. I have a very different sort of question, which is, do you have a favourite work of art, whether it's pop culture or back in time, that sort of expresses the dilemmas over time? Just something that, whether it's an image or, I don't know, any, any expression of art, like you just talked about cultural expression. Can it be, can it be literature? It can be anything. Oh, so I have, I have, I could, <laughs> could sit here for another hour if you want me to tell you all the um, sort of literature that I'm into, but um, there's a lot of interesting science fiction and fantasy that brings out various philosophical questions having to do with time and time travel and these type of things. 
Um, there's um, one of the sort of biggest science fiction writers, Robert Heinlein, is well known for writing these really intricate time travel stories where everything happens just as it needs to happen so that there's uh, no paradox or no, no, nothing weird happening. Um, and if I may, since you asked me, you know, favorite kind of work of, I, I'd like to strongly recommend my favorite author, which is Brandon Sanderson, who writes these type of novels that also have these very interesting um, investigations intellectually about what it means for you to say travel back in time or what's the meaning of time in and of itself. So that's my favorite work, my favorite works. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to give you a single work, um, but a few years ago I, I got started working on a project with a colleague who works in the art history department at the University of Nottingham uh, because we, she, was, she was very big on the idea that the way that time got represented in medieval art was something that I should pay real attention to. Um, and she showed me all of these paintings um, in various different books that she has, um, and I, I just stared at them like, well, that's, that's great and everything, but where's, where's the temporal representation in here? I, I can't see anything. And as we talked, and she describes the various different techniques for bringing out the temporal structure in the artworks, it, it's, it was like having um, the scales removed from my eyes as to what was going on in, in these works that I just couldn't see going on at all. Um, School of Athens being a case in point, right? I just don't see any temporal structure there, but uh, it's there. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd say I'm not going to identify a particular work, but I'd say track down an art historian, get grappling hooks into them, and make them show you a lot of medieval art and get them to talk you through the temporal structure that, that to me, I was just completely blind to. And that's fascinating to me, because remember, I'm, I'm going to start with those intuitive models um, and we were interested in the history of the development of the philosophy of time. Uh, but without that, that very lucid kind of, um, that, that way of writing through paintings, he says, you can tell I'm not an art historian, right? That, that way of communicating and developing narratives through paintings. All of, those, all of that conceptual development, I was completely blind to until she was able to, to walk me through it. And I'm probably still blind to 90% of it, but at least now I, I can see it blurrily. So, yeah, I, that's... Not necessarily a very satisfying answer, but medieval art's great. Uh, why do you guys think time goes quicker as we age? <laughs> Simple answer. Is there anything on this? Uh, so I'm, I'm, so I, I don't think it does. I think it seems like it does, and I'm, I'm trying to dredge the psychological literature that's looked at this, um, and there is one, and it's there. And it says, <laughs> ah, I, I can't remember, sorry. Yeah, I also don't have much to, uh, do you mean that our perception of time, that is? No, there's a psychological There's a psychological reason. one. Yeah, we yeah. just can't remember what it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry. It's a good question, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah thanks, guys. Um, earlier in the evening, there was some talk about how causation assumes a before and an after and implies this arrow of time. And I think, Ilay, you said that uh, physics doesn't actually support a theory of that kind of causation. What would an a-causal theory of fundamental forces look like? How do I make sense of fundamental forces if there's no causation? I, I think our theories of fundamental forces are a-causal theories of fundamental forces. So it's, you know... If you look at something like a differential equation, there's no cause and effect, there's just 
pick a particular um, sort of boundary or initial condition, and you can evolve the equation either forward in time or backwards in time. And if it's a deterministic type system, you'll get the entire history of the system. Right? But, um, and this is kind of reminiscent of Bertrand Russell type talk. There's no, there's no cause and effect in the equations. Um, and so there's evolution, and as you said, there's, there's, there's still time in there. Sure, uh, but not, not necessarily causation. Not um, usually when you think about not, not teleological causation, but there's still interaction. There's things happening, and one thing does happen after another, doesn't it? If that's all you mean, if all you mean by causation is that there's interaction and one thing happens after another, then I think you know um, it's fine to say that physics supports the idea that there is causation. But people usually mean something stronger. So if you look at the at the history of science, for example, you've had brilliant philosophers, scientists who have wanted to uphold some sort of principle. So somebody like Leibniz or somebody of the sort that says, all the sciences have to abide by some metaphysical principle of causation. Namely, there is no effect without a cause. I think this kind of grandiose, thicker notion of causation is not really supported by our best physical theories. And in fact, the history of science has many, many examples of how we thought that some principle of causation holds and then, in fact, the principle didn't hold. Right? The example um, regarding having effects without a cause just gets us at indeterministic systems and stochastic systems, where you can have, uh, for example, a dome with a ball on it, where the ball just starts rolling down, but there was no first cause. There was no, right, nobody flicked the ball. It just, that's the way things are in this particular kind of system. And so when I say that physics doesn't support a kind of robust notion of causation, that's what I'm claiming. So then it still supports the principle of least action and causation to the sense that interactions happen and least actions happen. Yeah. It's just that the thicker notion of causation you don't have. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We might make this the last question because we are significantly over and presumably people want to eat. And hungry. Crucially, we're hungry. That's, That's why we want to eat. Yeah. Okay, I'll talk louder. What I'm, I guess there's a lot of ways to, to engage in an enriching way with art history and theory because it um, has a lot of, draws on a lot of things that are allowed to exist outside of, of physics or philosophy. Um, do you see a future or a way to, to expand the conversation in, in that regard? Shall I go? Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So I think the, the, the best way to make progress generally uh, I mean obviously so subjects need to work really well on their own independently do their thing find their results that that's what they all do but what we all then saw they need to be massively careful of I think uh, is a certain degree of hubris that that we know this thing really well and that means that we you know we try and have this conversation with those nasty physicists over there and ha, what do they know about this and equally then you get the not that I've ever met one. But you can imagine a really nasty, hubristic physicist who says, well, I've got my physics here. What could I possibly learn from what's going on over there in philosophy or art history or literature or anything else? I, I think that, that, that as I'm describing it, that, that attitude of, of hubris that I have nothing to learn from another discipline is, is the worst sort of academic pig-headedness you can imagine uh, and is just an enormous problem. 
Uh, and I think that the best thing that you can do is have people be open-minded and have a degree of humility with the way that they interact with each other. And I think there's certainly scope for those conversations to be difficult while you try and learn each other's vocabularies. And there's certainly scope for you to get halfway down the line of a conversation and think, nah, I was wrong. You know, there, just, there just wasn't anything useful here that, that came out of it. But we've, we've got to be prepared to have open-minded conversations, I think. And if you don't do that, then, well, you know, what are you doing? So, yeah, be, be, be nice and chat, I think, is probably my, my answer to your question. That's yes, absolutely. That seems like a great place to <laughs> leave us. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.